The charge sheet reads like a combination of the worst horror movies ever made. The genocidal murder of millions. The rape of countless women. Experiments conducted on living people. And the mass indoctrination of an empire to fight to the death and kill without mercy. Hideki Tojo was Japan's imperial architect and a psychotic maniac. Had victory come his way during World War II, the Pacific Ocean and all its territories would have become Japanese possessions. Many hundreds of millions would have been sentenced to forced labor or put to death. Instead, after Japan's defeat, he tried to kill himself and failed. He would ultimately be brought to justice, and history would remember him as a prolific and notorious war criminal. Well, the last episode of Blind History, we spoke about someone called Heinrich Himmler, who, unless you've been living under a rock, is probably one of the most evil people in history. But the next contestant in this game is someone called Hideki Tojo. And many people may not know who he is, but shame on you if you don't. We won't penalize you. That's what Blind History is all about. We'll teach you about why you should know this guy's name and why we should do our damnedest to make sure that less of the Hideki Tojos and Heinrich Himmlers of this world ascend to power. Anthony Meter is my co-host. This is Blind History, and we are on to a Japanese prime minister. I mean, this is what it'll say in the, you know, if you, if you Google him, it'll say Japanese politician, general of the Imperial Japanese Army, and prime minister of Japan. If you read a little bit further, it will, it will tell you that he's a convicted war criminal, that he was the person who decided to bomb Pearl Harbor, and that he was also an absolute monster who saw the deaths of at least a couple of hundred thousand and possibly a couple of million people during his tenure as both prime minister and head of the army. Tojo, sure. He was, he was a nut job like Himmler, Hitler. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was on the same level. The fact that he was prime minister and he had an emperor above him. Later on, they found out, obviously, that the emperor did was complicit in a lot of things. But what he did for the cause of making a greater Japan, you know, was just frightening. Well, he was born into a pretty ordinary but samurai family. So there was a lot of tradition in the family and he understood that he wanted to go into the military. He started in the army in about 1905 rose through the ranks because he was extremely good at creating organization around him. He was also an extremely good, efficient administrator. He made sure that everything that needed to be approved, everything that needed to be decided, that he was in charge of that. He would take control of any job that you gave him and he would deliver the results. So he rose very quickly through the ranks. Yeah, and Hideki was called the Razor. And, you know, when you look at his history, it had something to do with killing people, but it actually didn't. It was just because he was so good, you know, his bureaucratic efficiency, mm. which is incredible. But just a minute, just to go back to the samurai, uh, the samurai caste, as they call it, it had been abolished in 1871, but that was not long before he was born. So it was still very, very strong and prevalent. And although they were quite a poor family, they had a lot of prestige and privilege as being part of the samurai. And it was something that they really believed in. And, you know, I think that drove him. He just, he was warped. So it drove him sort of in a different ideal. And funny enough, there was 
everybody around Hideki at Tojo were of similar thought in terms of making Japan one of the great world powers. And I think Japan at that time were all driven towards this ideal. Absolutely. Just as with Himmler, there was this idea of German superiority. With Tojo, there was this idea of Japanese ethnic and racial superiority. He believed at his core that Japan was destined to take over all of Asia. He believed that the Japanese people were advanced, that they were superior, that somehow God had imbued them with not only a divine emperor, a living God on earth, but that he'd imbued them with this extraordinary ability to bring the rest of Asia under their heel. And he relentlessly followed through with that particular ideology to the bitter end. They were all taught at a young age. It was a great honor. And it was, the war was beautiful. And it was a great honor to die for, for their emperor. That was the boy's side. On the girl's side, they taught them that it was a bigger honor to bear sons that could actually die for the emperor. So that's how they were brought up. But uh, Hideki, just looking at him and his, his personality, what they said, he was not particularly intelligent, but extremely hard worker, but very stubborn, no sense of humor, seems to be similar to a lot of these nut jobs, and very competent. And when he was young, he got into a lot of fights with other boys around him and extremely competitive. It's interesting also that during his early military career, and we, we don't know a huge amount of what, you know, what kind of a childhood he had, but he immediately started to gain prominence in the army. He was promoted to chief of staff of the Kwantung army. He led military operations against the Chinese and was hugely successful there, but he was also sadistic. He basically okayed the killing of, oh, hundreds of thousands of people at very least in China. He believed that the Chinese were inferior people. There was raping of women, the actual offensive that we're talking about is called the rape of Nanping and millions of people probably died. Uh, we, we will never know the full numbers because yeah. they were bayoneted. They were disemboweled. They were shot if they were lucky. Uh, but basically it was a, just an absolute orgy of chaos. And many of them were civilians. That was the big part is that the way he treated the civilians in that greater Eastern Asian war, that's where he got his reputation. And that's where the atrocity started. So often people say, well, why was he tried for you know, war crimes? Well, you can see this is already at the start of it. And this was before World War II even started. So he was already doing this stuff. In the early part of his career, there are all kinds of horror stories about this man and how you know, to him it was all just about accounting for and keeping the, the efficiency at a high, even if it meant doing the most terrible things. He was also part of a division of, Japanese political society at that stage that believed that they needed to assert their might over all the other people of the region, that essentially he could go into places like the Philippines or wherever else and take what Japan needed to keep growing. Of course, Japan, you know, as a small series of islands, they would, wouldn't have had the raw materials and resources that they would have needed to become an imperial power, which they later did. But he saw an immediate opportunity when he'd, he'd been to Germany to visit and he'd seen how if you have a very strong military and you have the whole of society mobilized with that military, you can achieve amazing and imperial objectives. And this is what obviously was percolating in his head after his visit to Germany. He said, this is what we can do in Japan. Yeah. And he obviously looked very much up to, to the fascist Mussolini mm -hmm. and then Hitler. And I think in the end, I, I'm not sure the exact, yeah, I think it was 1941 that they had that pact. Japan, Italy, and Germany brought that together. The Axis Pact, yeah. The Axis Pact, 
well. He did love the emperor and he gained most of his authority and his prestige from the emperor being impressed by all of his imperial ambitions. You know, he told the emperor, we must make Japan the greatest nation on earth. We must take over from all these inferior people. And obviously the emperor loved all of this because it put him at the center of power and it made the nation of Japan seem much better and bigger and stronger than they were. He'd already started to make friends in the right places. He'd managed to get rid of all the people who were a threat to him. This, again, is a similar route to power that's followed by many uh, nutcases and psychopaths in history. But the uh, the most amazing part of this is that he eventually became prime minister. So, you know, he, it wasn't enough that he was just head of the army, minister for war, but he eventually became prime minister and essentially became minister of everything by the end of his tenure. I mean, just before he was eventually dismissed, he had become home secretary he was uh, boss of just about every department in government and had absolute power under the emperor. And the emperor was really just rubber stamping stuff. Yeah, he held the positions of army minister while he was prime minister, as well as home minister, foreign minister, education minister, and minister of commerce. And I think in the schools, when you look at the home minister and, and education minister, military was always put first. And as yeah. home minister, he, he obviously... This is where we start talking about eugenics and policies mm -hmm. that came through and elim eliminating the mentally unfit. And I don't know what that description is, but he should have killed himself maybe. But that also came through. So he had absolute power, Gareth. You're 100% correct. Of course, at this stage, the, the Second World War was underway. And by now, it had become clear that Germany had been preoccupying the Allies. And in Southeast Asia, there were all these colonies that the French the British and the Dutch had owned that were basically waiting to be taken. And he saw an opportunity here to turn Japan into a real imperial power by just seizing resources in those countries. And of course, he'd already done his damage in China and in Korea. So it was time for him to focus on others. And he went in there with a ruthlessness and just really that the Japanese military under him had kind of taken the original samurai code and just made it a whole lot more brutal. Anyone who opposed them needed to be killed. They must not give up under any condition. The ethos was that as a Japanese soldier, it's either win or die. And if you die, you only die honorably if you die fighting. So don't give up, you know? It's this idea of like Banzai. And he was the one who essentially got kids. You mentioned the Minister of Education. He got kids practicing at very, very young ages with wooden guns, marching, learning to take orders, he'd infused the entire Japanese society with this idea that this was a national effort and that while the, the military were, were out there expanding the borders of the empire, that it was up to the people on the inside to be providing fresh bodies, to be providing industry, to be providing discipline and a cater of children who would grow up to be the next generation of Japanese superior forces. But what happened from that, as you rightly said in the beginning, because the concentration of the British and the, and the Allied forces weren't focused on Southeast Asia, I mean, he had some incredible victories in the, in the early part of the war. And they sort of developed what they actually called a victory disease. And you could see he didn't have a total grasp because he set up non-negotiable demands um, that he put to the Allies, which included the taking over the territories of Australia, British India, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, British Columbia, which is part of Canada, Washington State, 
uh, Alaska, Hawaii, as well as Ecuador, Colombia, and Honduras. So, I mean, he looked like he had his feet on the ground. Well, he thought the entire Pacific should belong to Japan. Yeah. And it was about at this time that he made one or two really stupid decisions. The first of those stupid decisions was that it was time to take India, which was quite well defended. And the British and the Indian population were not exactly keen to be dominated by Japan. They marched over the, the Himalayas with cattle, hardly like Hannibal and his elephants, and ran out of supplies and failed very quickly in India. And this was the first crack in his otherwise perfect suit of armor. The second decision came dishonorably in 1941, which was the decision to go to war with America. And this was obviously a bit of a miscalculation on his part. He lied and pretended that there were still diplomatic gestures going on between Japan and, mm. and the US. But in secret, he was plotting to bomb Pearl Harbor already sometime before it happened. And his plan was that they were going to take out America at the knees, disable them in the Pacific, and then take over everywhere in his, in his bold ambition to conquer the whole of the Pacific. Yeah, I don't think he ever wanted to negotiate. I don't think there was ever in his mind, although he was quite an indecisive leader, that was one thing he was 100% clear on, and he hated Western culture. Like public displays of affection drove him insane. He called it eroticism, grotesqueness, and total nonsense. So I don't think you were ever going to, to pull him back. Yeah. He was involved in, in obviously nasty things. There was this unit that he created, which has gone down in history as one of the most wicked things ever, where they, they would experiment on live people. He was personally responsible for creating this unit. It was part of the Japanese secret service, which he was also in charge of. And they would essentially tie people to poles and then drop bombs and things on them and see what happened to them. They would film it. They would observe it in close quarters. He would operate on people while they were alive and weren't sedated. He would cut people open while they were still alive. Uh, not he personally, but he had a you know whole phalanx of people who were doing these disgusting and deplorable and insane and absolutely revolting experiments on living people. And he supplied all the bodies to them as well. He said, how many people do you need to conduct these experiments? Funnily enough, one of the things that we benefited from as a world, and I say benefited in inverted commas, but his unit's studies on frostbite have become quite handy because they would force people to undergo the most grueling ordeals in order to observe what happened to them. And before he came along with this, we didn't actually know very much about frostbite, how to prevent it, how it spreads, and exactly what you can do about it until he came along. So if there's one small contribution he made to medical science with this disgusting unit that he had, then that is it. But otherwise, it was absolutely appalling. And it was all these people, and most of these people are prisoners of war. Uh, and, you know, there's a code that they stuck by, very similar to the Germans. Um, the Geneva Convention. Exactly. And, of course, these guys, because of Tojo, they never signed the Geneva Convention. Yeah, you know, there's so many books out on these guys that were the, some of the bombers that were bombing uh, Japan. They got shot down and then they were taken as prisoners and, mm. you know, and what the atrocities that were committed against them. It's just frightening what they did. Yeah, if you actually look into the the kinds of things that this unit of his was were, were doing to these prisoners. And by the way, they were they were Chinese prisoners. They were 
ordinary civilians. They were people from the conquered territories in Southeast Asia. They were Western prisoners of war. Terrible, terrible things done just purely for torture, just to see how horribly you can kill people. And that is a new low. Yeah, and also once he stepped down, the barbaric rules, they didn't stop it. So, you know, the leadership, they continued when he was gone, you know, where human life was deemed valueless. And uh, such as such as atrocities as Manila Massacre, if you have to look at that, 100,000 Filipino civilians were slaughtered. I mentioned the rape of Nanjing, which was obviously in, in northern China. The Bataan Death March, which has gone down as one of the most horrible things that anybody has ever experienced on earth, uh, where they marched all these prisoners of war and basically just found ways of culling them at any point. You know, if you were too mm. tall, they would just bayonet you. If you were too slow, if you were too fast, there was always an excuse and they would just, you know, take down tens to thousands of people at a time. And uh, the experimentation, the torture, the death, all of this has been, I suppose it's all coalesced around the story of Tojo as this, just this maniacal monster and the nature of the way japan went to war and the whole point of dying for the emperor made it a very 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 hard for them to surrender and hard also for the allies to get them to surrender and i think you know look there's a whole story behind hiroshima and nagasaki and the reasons for dropping the u.s nuclear bombs but that's the only way they could have what it seemed to them at the time was they could have knocked these guys out of the war and and finally get a resolution I mean, Tojo, above all others, had said never surrender, you know, and I think the, the Japanese people took him very seriously. He was very popular while he was on the ascent, but his demise came very quickly, too. Of course, there was the terrible battle of Saipan, which didn't go so well for Japan. Of course, Midway had happened as well. That was where it started to go downhill for him. But the U.S. was steadily making more and more gains in the war. And eventually the emperor forced him to resign in 1944. And following his nation's surrender. In fact, on the day of the surrender of Japan, the US army surrounded his house and he realized the game was up and he tried to shoot himself. He had a doctor who was living with him. The doctor made a little mark on his chest where his heart was and said, shoot here. And he was so incompetent that he shot himself in the stomach. And yeah, he missed his heart. Yeah. He was trying, you know, he's trying to kill himself, but he obviously missed. Mm. And then they got in on time. They heard the gunshot and the U.S. soldiers broke in and they found him bleeding and they took him to hospital and they stitched him up and he stood trial at the yeah. military tribunal for the Far East. And he was sentenced to death. He was hanged on December the 23rd, 1948. And just recently they found some documents that prove that he and six other high ranking Japanese officials who were sentenced at that tribunal they took their ashes after they were immediately cremated and they just dropped them over an undisclosed part of the Pacific. So ironically, Tojo's remains may own the Pacific or he may be part of the Pacific for the rest of eternity, but not through any design of his own. After the war for a time, they had a memorial for him. Oh, there's still many Japanese who regard him as a national hero. And the emperor, who was had a lot of blood on his hands, and subsequently they found out that he was complicit. He should have also been tried for war crimes, but he was seen as a savior and continuation of the resurrection of Japan post-war. There was a, a bit of a negotiation there because they, the Americans realized that if they treated the emperor like a normal person, they might never get Japan to accede to any 
post-war deal, that they would never be able to completely subdue this extremely fanatical and quite devastating mental delusion that so many people in Japan were under at the time, that their emperor was a god, that he couldn't be treated like other people. And while someone like Tojo could be tried, by trying the emperor, they would really upset and fundamentally create a rift in, in the Japanese society that might not allow Japan to ever re-enter the international community. So they decided to let the emperor off easily. But uh, people like Tojo, they got what was coming to them. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the Japanese in business, or it could be personal, they're just so different now. They're extremely humble. It's just night and day compared to the era of Hideki Tojo. Well, two nuclear bombs on two cities would maybe do that to you. But I think that mm. the Japanese, uh, while, while they have such honor and, and tradition and power in their culture, this was probably the lowest point in Japanese history. And it was largely the fault of people like Tojo. And, and I think many Japanese look on World War II as a source of great shame. And many other Japanese, in much more quiet ways, perhaps look up to the dream that was, this imperial dream, which someone like Tojo was so close to making a reality for them. But either way, history has written him into the book of the bad rather than the book of the good. Yeah. And uh, we bring you yet another villain in our ongoing series on good and bad people in history. The character and scale of what took place remains actually difficult to comprehend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his grandson has been interviewed. Someone interviewed his grandson and said, you know, what do you think of him? And the grandson says, look, he was insanely devoted to his emperor and to Japan. He made many decisions that people regard as being a little bit problematic, to put it lightly, and completely disgusting, to put it more blatantly. But this is the heritage that he's bestowed on us. And, he, you know, this, this grandson of his is, is there and, and has to deal with this legacy in a very personal yeah. way. Awful. Yeah. Sons of the father. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So there it is. Hideki Tojo, Prime Minister of Japan, General, Minister of War, and ultimately War Criminal. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He left slapping people. Oh, yeah? Part of the samurai culture was to slap people to instill discipline. But he took it to a new level. He was slapping people all the time, which is unusual to the Westerners. Because in the beginning, during the war, part of his government wanted him to engage and to try and some peace negotiations. And he would slap a lot of his colleagues. 